Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we are thankful that we can come together each week that we have a place to gather, that we as a people can gather and to be reminded of our hope. We're grateful that we can look into your word and see how you have dealt with your people across generations and millennia so that we can see your character and the consistency of who you are, the, so that we can see the highs and the lows and the, the, the peaks and the valleys of people in real life we're following your call. And so as we open up your word today and continue in this study of Abram and his life, <clears throat> we pray that you would help us, that you would open our hearts, that you would show us particularly today, that you would root out the real foundation of where our ambitions lie, that you would expose our hearts where we need to be exposed, but also that you would show us that we can have confidence even when we fail. And so we ask that you'd meet us in this time through your word, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we have just begun a series in the life of Abraham. We are, this will take us through the fall semester and really kind of up toward the end of the year. And um, we're looking at Abraham's life because he is called in scripture the man of faith. We began last week in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to take one chapter at a time. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 13 today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up with me there or pull it up on your phone. It'll also be on the screens for you. Um, as a reminder, if you don't have a physical Bible and you like one. We have some in the back, and it's our gift to you. You can take it with you today. And so we are looking at Abraham's life because, because as the man of faith, he's an example to us because Christianity at its, at its core, if we're going to understand what true Christianity is, it's built on faith. It's built on faith that the promises of God are true and faith that God will lead us and guide us ultimately for our good and his glory. And so Abram's life shows us what real faith looks like. And in that, it shows us that what it looks like to be faithful and to trust God and to trust God's calling and to follow it even when it takes us into uncomfortable places or unknowns. But he also shows us the reality of failure and that we will fail along the way. And we saw this even last week as Abram, and he keeps kind of like slurring his name because I don't know whether to call him Abram or Abraham. He is, he's Abram in chapter 13. By the time we get to chapter 17, God changes his name to Abraham. And so I'm just gonna stick with Abram today. Um, so Abram, in, in chapter 12, we saw this, that God's, God came to him, the word of God came to Abram, and, he said, and God said to him, go. I'm going to show you the place when you get there. And so God said, I'm going to call you away from your people and your place, your foundation of where you've been and who you've been, where he had buried his father, Terah. He said, go, and I'm going to leave these things behind and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God said, all right, Abram, this is your call. You need to go to the place I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna make you a great nation, so you're gonna have children who have children who have children, and through you I'm going to bless all people, all of the families of the earth. And, and Abram went, just as God had called him. And, and he got to the land, and God said to him, when he got to the land of Cana, he said, this is the place that I'm going to give your descendants. But as soon as that had happened, it seems, a famine hit. And so Abram bailed. He went to Egypt, and it just spiraled from there. He went to Egypt and, and tried to find his own provision and protection in Egypt from this famine. He ended up lying about his wife, not trusting God to protect him, and ended up, so we saw that he didn't trust God's promise, his provision, his protection, or his preservation. But God afflicted Pharaoh with plagues, and Abram came out of that place, and that, that's where we start today, is today we're gonna see what, how to respond to failure. I don't want to preach this message because I don't like to fail. I feel like that's like, well, yeah, of course, nobody likes to fail, but I mean, I really don't like to fail. I did a leadership profile a few years ago, and on the category of need to win, which I didn't know was a category, but I think I won it um, because, because I got a 99 need to win. Like, I, I am the type of a person that if I know that I cannot win a game, I will not play it. I have zero interest, and so I shouldn't say that so strongly. There are times, like, I hate the game nerds, and my family loves it. Uh, I don't like it, and I don't often win at it, and I will only play out of my love for my children and my wife. But it's a, but it's a pro failure is a problem, and it's a problem that it, for every one of us, at some level, whether you're a 99 need to win or a 40 need to win, you're still there's something within us that we don't like to fail. But the problem is that every one of us will. Some of us spectacularly. And so it's hard to know what to do from that point, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's at work, whether it's in, our, in faith, in our, in our spiritual life, in our walk with God, how do we respond to failure? I mean, we, because we, every one of us has ambition too. I think for some of us, like one of my favorite quotes about failure was, uh, is from the greatest basketball player of all time, um, undisputed, is Michael Jordan said, I've... I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. We hear that from Michael Jordan because he won six NBA championships, a couple of gold medals, unprecedented MVP awards. And so we can look at him and say, well, yeah, I want to hear about failure from a guy like that because that's the reason he succeeds. We don't have people writing books that just say, I have failed over and over and over again in my life, period. And so we like the idea of ambition, that we can pull ourselves out and that failure shapes us into, in good things, but it doesn't always. Well, today we're gonna look at Abram and Lot as they head back from Egypt. And again, we're gonna see responses to failure. Um, and so this is what we read in Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. 
to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east, and thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so responding to failure. We have two responses to failure that we see in the text, and then we're also going to look at God's response to Abram's failure. Well, first, let's start with Lot. Lot shows us what it looks like that sometimes responses to failure mean that we trust ourselves and press on. Basically, no real distinction for Lot. They came back from Egypt. He was glad to have a bunch of stuff that he had gained from their time in Egypt. They were both very rich. And Lot fell into the same trap here, coming back to the land of Canaan, that Abram had fell into in Egypt. Lot was a man of ambition. He had big plans for his life, and he was going to seize any chance he had to achieve them. Now, Abram came to him and said, hey, this isn't working out. There's not enough here. Even our herdsmen are getting into conflict with each other. And Abram did something that was shrewd, but it was also really countercultural at the time. Abram could have told Lot where he was going to go. He had the right as the the one who was senior, who was his uncle, who was over the the household as as a whole, to be able to tell those things to Lot. But instead, he let Lot choose. And so he allowed that to happen because Abram had learned some lessons, as we'll see in a few minutes. And so Lot looked, he looked to the valley, and he saw an opportunity and he seized it. Now, ambition itself isn't bad or wrong, but it's easy to make ambition the core of who we are and our idol. We saw last week that Abram had received from God, he had received a promise He had received provision and protection and and preservation that God was going to have a legacy through him. And those are the things that that he had a hard time with. He distrusted God's promise. He doubted God's provision, diminished God's protection, and disbelieved his preservation. And Lot fell into the same traps. He looked to the valley and he said, look at that place. Why would I not go there? 
Like he's looking in the, in the wilderness that can't support people and in the Jordan Valley, everything was green and lush. And do you see, it reminded him of Egypt. And we saw last week, Egypt is usually not a great sign in the Old Testament text. But that's what it reminds a lot of, and that's what he wants. It, it made me think of it when you get to the Exodus account, and Moses had led the people out of Egypt at every stop along the way. When they turn on Moses, they say, like, hey, why did you even bring us out here? We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to the place where we, we were in bondage, because they had, they had a skewed memory of it. And so Lot here has, has this ambition for what he's going to become, and ambition makes it easy for us to believe that we know the best paths, that we know better than God does, and we will have no problem willing that reality into existence. I don't have to tell most of you about that, because we are sitting in D.C. This is a place that is filled with ambition. It's a place that is filled with people that are, that are willing things into existence, trying to convince yourself along the way that it's what's best, and, and even when you know that things put you into danger. It's, it's always amazing. Um, our family has lived here for 13 years now. I know some of you were born and raised in D.C. I know many of you have come to this place. Um, having been here for a little while now and starting this church and being involved in people's lives, um, we see it all the time that people will come to D.C. from other places around the country and around the world. And when you first get here, you have this idea that you are going to change the world. Is that familiar to any of you? Usually within about 18 months, you start to realize that some of those ambitions are probably not going to work out like you hoped. And so then you have a decision to make of whether you're gonna, going to continue on or bounce and use the resume that you've built. And so some of you have decided to continue on, but with a, a more sober-minded look at what impact you can have. Well, Lot didn't rest in God's promise to Abram here. He had his own ambition that he was going to shape. And he also didn't, didn't rest in, the, in God's promise that that place would bring provision. He looked to maximize his profits and provide for himself. And, and so some, I was, as I looked this week, um, some rabbinical commentators take verse 10, where it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the, valley, that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. That, that, that this isn't actually the reality of the Jordan Valley at the time in its fullness, but this was Lot's vision for what it could be that he saw it and he said, this is the place that I can make to be like Eden. This is the place where I can make it to be that utopian existence where everything is sprouting from the ground and everything goes well and there's no real risk but it, because I can secure my future in this place. And he, he wanted his own utopian life and all that he had to do in his mind was to make the right moves to secure it for himself. And that shows us a litmus test for each one of us. What is your Eden? What is, the, what is it that if you were able to get it, you are convinced that everything would go well in your life? That you will have achieved what you, were set out to, what you set out to achieve? That everything would be good, that you would have safety and you wouldn't have to worry anymore? And what is it that'll get you there? 
See, if you, can, if you can dig down deep into your own heart and discover the answer to those questions, then you might have a chance of finding your functional heaven, the thing that you're actually driven toward and what you're willing to leverage to get there, so your functional savior. Every one of us has, has ambition toward things that we, that we try to convince ourselves are good but put us at risk and are self-focused at, at their core. And so trying to unearth those things helps us to understand our own hearts better. And Lot moved in next to the cities of the valley. Well, why would he move to the cities of the valley? Well, it tells us that the Canaanites and Perizzites were still in the land. And so he moved his tent and he went into the cities of the valley because cities were places where you could find protection. Now, he didn't move into the cities yet. He moved near them. But do you see that it goes on to say, like, Ab- he, Lot, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Lot settled, he went east among the cities of the valley and he moved his tent where? as far as Sodom. Now, I would say that I don't want to give you spoilers on what's going to happen to Sodom in a couple chapters, but it already tells you in this passage, like, in case you needed it, it gets dropped in there. Uh, This was before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so Lot moved his tents next to Sodom, a city known for its wickedness, and, to be, and the only reason to be near a city in the ancient world was that you had a place to go if you needed to be protected. And, and so in this, there is a progression that begins here, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, that over the next several weeks as we see Lot's progression, here he moves in near Sodom. By chapter 14, he moved into Sodom. By chapter 19, he was sitting in the gate of Sodom, which means he was an elder of the city that was, that was esteemed in Sodom. And by, chapter, by the middle of chapter 19, he has his daughters betrothed to men in Sodom. And so Lot's proximity here did not end up in his favor. And we need to see this because when it comes to things that we look to for our safety and for our identity, there can be good things that we put in the place of God in our lives. And so it's not a bad thing to have ambition. It's not a bad thing to have something you go for or to seek the opportunity to have provision and protection. Those aren't bad things. But if we lift those up as to the ultimate things, not trusting God and relying on ourselves, then we will, we will end up like Lot, descending further and further and being desensitized more and more to what actual wickedness is and what it means to stand against God. We will become more calloused and more numb. This is the proverbial frog in the pot of boiling water. Because it, the classic like, preacher story, if you put a p- frog and you just toss a frog in a pot of boiling water, it'll jump out, it's hot. But if you put a frog in a cold pot of water and turn on the heat and slowly raise the heat until it boils, the frog will adjust over time and, and it will boil itself to death. Now, I have never tried that with real frogs, but regardless of if that's actually what a frog would do, that is, there's something true to that for us. That's what happened to Lot. What did he do? He chose his own ambition. He moves in next to Sodom to seek the protection of the cities of the valley. He ends up in the city as an elder of the city with daughters who are betrothed and tied to men in the city. And, And he ends up being kidnapped. He ends up having his family broken down. He ends up losing his wife to it as she can't give it up and looks back at it. Even when God saves his family, he ends up in a terrible situation with his daughters. His entire life and legacy is impacted. 
because he's too close and he's cozying up with the wicked. We need that corrective. Some of you are playing with sin. Some of you are cozying up to people, to movements, to places, to activities that you know you shouldn't. You may not have crossed the lines that you've set yet, but you get closer and closer, and the closer you get to those lines, the grayer they become. You're finding safety where you know you'll slip, and and, and you've gotta hear, don't just sit there and go deeper into it, waiting to be boiled alive, but get out, because it's better to have the shock of the cold than a cozy death. But Lot turned to his own self-preservation and pride. He wanted a legacy of greatness and would do what he had to. And so Lot shows us what ambition looks like as we respond to failure, that that one of our responses is that we trust ourselves and decide, you know what, I trust what I'm going to do, and I'm just going to keep pressing on as if this really didn't happen. Abram shows us something different. Abram's response is to trust God, to repent, and to return. And so he trusts God and returns. Now, again, we saw this last week. We talked about his calling was go. I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and you're going to be a blessing. You'll be blessed, and through you, I'm going to bless the families of the earth. And so Abram then got scared by a famine and took off. And, he, and, and so we saw what it looks like when our faith fails when in, in Abram's life, that when we distrust God's promises or doubt in his provision or diminish God's protection and disbelieve his preservation. But, but look what Abram did. It's a complete reversal. The first words of chapter 13, so Abram went up from Egypt. Now, this is going up geographically, I mean topographically, because he was going into the hills of Cana, but you'll see throughout Scripture, too, that whenever you're getting toward the Promised Land and whenever you're getting toward Jerusalem, it is always up to God's presence. And so Abram had gone down to Egypt. Now he returns and goes back up to where God had called him. And where does he go? Well, it says right off the top that that he had all this money and wealth that he had gained in Egypt, which we'll see isn't great because it actually brings division between him and his his family with Lot. But what does he do? He goes, he he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So what did Abram do? This is what real repentance is, is he turned from one pursuit in a different direction and actually pursued it. He went back into the land that God had promised, the place where God had said, this is, what, where, this is the place that all of your offspring, your descendants are going to inherit. He went back to that place, to the same place where he had pitched his tent, to the same place where he had built an altar, and he worshiped God in that place. Now, that, that takes some, some risk on Abram's part, to take that journey back. It takes humility on Abram's part to take that journey back. When we fail, we don't always want to respond that way and go back to where we've started. We might want to sweep it under the rug. We might want to just do the next thing so that we forget about it. We might, like Lot, have different ambitions that we're going to keep pressing through and pursuing regardless of what happens to us. But here, Abram believed that God would preserve him. He believed that, and he sought God's protection. He wasn't worried about about how he was going to be protected anymore, whether God would provide for him, because he was confident in God's provision, to the point that he went to his nephew and said, go ahead and you choose first where you want to be, because he trusted God's promise to him. And that is the nature of real repentance. It's to turn from one direction and head in another. And we can confess in a moment 
but evaluating repentance takes time. It was, it was a journey for Abram to get back to Bethel. This was not just an overnight, God, sorry about that, I shouldn't be in Egypt. Like, it took action. He returned. He didn't get there in one night, but took everything he had with him again, just as he had at the beginning of chapter 12, when he left the place where he, of, of his father's home and, his, and his, where, where his father's house and his kindred to the place where God would show him, and he went back to the place that God had shown him. So that gets to the nature of repentance. I want to talk about that just for a couple of minutes, kind of step out, step out of this for a moment. Because this is something that I don't know, I don't think that we often think through fully, is what does it mean to repent? Like there are different aspects that lead to repentance that we, I think at times we confuse for repentance. And one of those is confession. Now, confession is good, but confession is acknowledging that you did something wrong. So that's, confession can happen purely in your head. Like that's using your mind to go, oh, that was wrong, and I need to say that it was wrong. Often confession actually comes not, like it's pretty rare that we volunteer confession, right? Like often do you go to somebody and say, I did this wrong thing to you and you didn't notice. Usually confession comes when we get caught. You get caught doing something, you go, I'm sorry, I did it. Like this is with kids all the time that you say, you know, you say, hey, Why'd you do that? That was wrong. And they go, I know, I'm sorry. You say, okay, we need to sit and talk about this. And they go, why do we need to talk about it? I said, I'm sorry. Well, that's, that's not repentance. We do the same thing. It's just that we, don't, we have filters built in where kids don't yet. And so when we get caught, we can confess, but it means way less confessing when you're caught than it does if you're ahead, ahead of things and confessing on your own. And it's true that without recognizing that something was wrong, we can't come to a point of repentance, but confession in and of itself is not the fullness of repentance. Now, it is important. I mean, John tells us in 1 John that um, if we say to ourselves we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so God is faithful to what he promises us in Christ. And confession is important, it's the starting point. But confession can come just from our heads, an acknowledgement of something wrong. I think we often confuse repentance also with remorse. That's when it kind of hits our hearts, when we feel bad about something. And so we feel bad about it, we feel sorrowful about it, we feel ashamed or we feel guilt, and so it hits our hearts and we feel remorseful, we wish that we wouldn't have done it, and so there's, it's an emotional connection to the understanding of like, not just that we've done something wrong, but you actually feel that you've done something wrong, um, but, but remorse in and of itself isn't repentance either. It's a necessary step. You need to be able to experience the emotions of your own guilt and shame in order to be able to deal with them. But remorse can also turn just as selfish as anything else because it can become self-pitying. We can become sorry for, for ourselves, not for the wrong that we've done. But repentance brings those together. Repentance takes action. It's our heads, our hearts, and a change of direction in our lives, that, and it shows up in our lives over time, and so repentance can't always be measured in a moment. We can measure whether somebody has confessed and feels remorseful, 
But we can't measure repentance until we see things acted out over time. This is why when the Reformation kicked off and on, Octo- on October 31st, on Halloween night um, in, in 1517, that, that Luther, as he nailed his theses to the door, the very first of his 95 theses was, when the Lord Jesus commanded us to repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. It never goes away. Now, in part because we have things that we'll continue to need to confess and repent of and return to Christ, but in part because the nature of repentance is turning away from one direction to head another. And so if you are, have turned away from your own sin and rebellion against God and turned toward Jesus, then that never changes, that we're going to continue to need to remind ourselves of that turn over and over again. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 7 when he says, you know, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. And there's this war going on within him between his flesh and God's word within him, and he he ends it by saying, like, what a wretched man I am. But there is therefore now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. There's a a continual need for us to turn and repent. Whether Whether you're not walking with Jesus, you need to understand this is what real repentance is and what God calls us to if we're gonna follow Christ, is continually turning away from our own pursuits, our own selfish ambition to to pursue Christ and make his ambition our foremost ambitions. If you're a Christian, this is what it looks like every day, every moment to be reminded of repentance. Now that can lead to reconciliation and restoration. But even those terms, we get a little bit dicey for us, that reconciliation is peace made between warring parties, and and there's times when that's possible because there's mutuality, and there's times when people don't want to reconcile, and then we're stuck with like Romans 12 to, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Restoration, again, that's a restoration of intimacy or relationship, takes real repentance, but it's not always possible with other human beings because people don't always want to be restored. Sometimes there's necessary boundaries that we have to put into place, but it is always possible with God. And that's what we see in Abram. He recognized Egypt wasn't the place that God had for him. He had messed up by lying about his wife. So he turned back. He actually went the opposite direction. He went back to where he started so that he could turn into the place that he built an altar to worship God and worship God again, asking God, turning to him, hoping that there could be reconciliation, hoping that there would be restoration, that the promises of God were true. And God was faithful to him. Now, repentance doesn't mean that there aren't still consequences for our sin. When we do something wrong, we can do all this and confess and have remorse and repent and want to reconcile and seek restoration and still have consequences for our actions. And I I think Abram does here. Because I think when we look at what he came out of Egypt with, it can feel kind of dissonant. Like, okay, Abram went to a place that he wasn't supposed to go. He was scared of this famine that came into the land that God said he would give him. And he lies about his wife who gets taken into Pharaoh's household because he says, you know, tell, tell everybody you're my sister because I don't want to die. He doesn't trust God in that. And he ends up with all these gifts from Pharaoh that Pharaoh said to him, like he had given him. All these things, he said that for her sake, he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. 
But then when Pharaoh gets afflicted with plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife, and he says, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say that she was my sister? So I took her as my wife. So here's your wife. Go, take her. And Abram left with all that he had. And so we hear that and we're like, okay, if Abram was doing stuff wrong, how did he get all this wealth coming out on the other side of it? Because for us, that kind of wealth sounds like success and blessing. We were saying, thank you, Lord, for this. But sometimes our greatest successes, the things we take as success, are actually a curse to us because we can find our hope in them. Abram returned from Egypt with great wealth. So did Lot. But it was only a matter of time before that wealth divided their family because the place wasn't big enough to sustain the both of them, or at least their egos. So why did Abram repent and return, though? Because he believed in God's promise. His identity was rooted in and dependent on God's calling to him. That's why he repented and returned. Abram messed up. He did get scared in the famine. He doubted God and tried to figure it out on his own. He lied about his own wife and put her in danger. You'll see that this isn't the last time in Abram's life that he's going to doubt God's promises, try to do things under his own power, and it's not the last time that he lies about his wife. But his identity wasn't primarily in his place or his heritage. Like he left his father and his kindred, he left the place where his father was buried to follow God wherever he was being led. Abram's identity wasn't primarily in his ambition or in his self-sufficiency or self-discovery like Lot. And it also wasn't in his performance. Because Abram could have looked at this and said, you know what, God made me all these promises. Man, did I mess this up. It's over. But he returned, seeking God again, trusting God's promises again. Again, this is why it's important for us. If you're a Christian, now if you're not a Christian, this is what true Christianity is. People always want to try to push Christianity into whether it's politics or whether it's going to be right or left politically or whether Christianity is going to be its interaction with with ethics. And those things, there are some outworkings, certainly. But Christianity stands outside of those things, which is why it is is a clash to any human culture that it's ever, ever been in. To be a Christian and follow Jesus means that we are no longer primarily defined by family or bloodline or culture or community. We don't lose those things. But the New Testament is clear that we all become sons and daughters of Abraham. That we become sons and daughters of God. That we, that we might be called away from the places where we're from to go somewhere else that God will show us. We're defined by Christ's calling. We're not primarily defined by ourselves either, which gets really confusing in a place like DC. Because we live in a place that that people are self-defined, where people are seeking out a way to make a name for themselves. I mean, we have statues all across this city of people that none of us know existed, but they were important enough at the time to get a statue because they, they made a name for themselves. And so when we, when we live in a place where that is the, the air that we breathe, it is really hard to say that we are not primarily defined by our own thoughts on ourselves, our own sense of self-discovery, that, that actually to be a Christian is to say, I'm defined by my calling in Christ. And that means that, that I am fully captive to Christ. And, and it says in the New Testament that, 
that we were bought with a price. Like if you are in Jesus, you are admitting that you need a savior and you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. So you no longer are the primary definer of who you are, but it is God who defines who you are as he renews and restores his image and likeness in every one of us. Like there, there might be nothing more countercultural in this place than to say I'm defined by Christ and my calling to follow him more than my ambition, more than my own self-identity, more than the ways that I want to project myself, I'm defined by Christ. And we're not primarily defined by performance. That one is tough too. See, God knows we're gonna fail. Like he outed every one of us on the cross. He said, you're not able to do this. And so he took on flesh in Christ to take our place, to bear our sin, so that he could pay the cost we cannot. He raised to life conquering death, which we cannot accomplish on our own. We can't perform that well enough on our own. And so he, God has said to us, you can't do this, so I'm gonna make the way for you. And the question is, are we, when we stand before him, are we gonna say, well, hey God, here's the things I've performed, here's where I've come from, and here is the identity that I've decided I have, and use that as you're standing before God, or are you going to return, like Abram, to the place where God has called you, even if it wasn't the the place that you're from and come and say, like, I again am going to rest in the promises of God. Now, does it mean we try to fail? No, but to deny the reality that we fail is, is silly. And I think more than that, I think many of you, it's, it's more on an end of, of a fear of failure or a, never, it's like an, a consciousness of the reality of failure that just hangs on the horizon. I don't think I'm the only one in the room that hates to fail. And that goes deeper than just nerds. Like a fear of failure can keep you from pursuing things. Like playing a game, like, well, I don't know if that can happen. I doubt it's gonna happen. And so I would rather not try than get exposed. It could be too that when you do fail, if you're relying on your performance as your identity, then it will crush you. I've watched this breakout, work, work out in heartbreaking ways. Um, I, you know, we planted Redemption Hill Church. We, I'm around a lot of guys who have also planted churches. And there are a number that have, that have failed in highly visible public ways. It's been painful to watch. There's one pastor in particular that I knew who planted a church that grew large. He planted campuses and that, plant, that church planted other churches and was generous. It was, it was looked at as a success story. It was somebody that was writing books and making, by all counts, successful in making an impact. And at some point along the way, he failed. He messed up. He was removed from ministry put into a restoration plan that he completed for months, if not over a year. And once he walked through that plan, he wasn't going to be restored to the church that he had pastored and, and planted, but he was restored and, and again, like seen as someone who could step into ministry. But even as he stepped back into ministry, he ended up essentially marketing his own restoration path. But he never got past that failure. 
And in the end, he took his own life. Now, do I think he loved Jesus? Yes. But if we find our identity in anything other than Christ, even if it's in our performance in good things following God's call, we're setting ourselves up to be crushed when we fail. If our identity is in our performance, we will have a a limit to how badly we can fail. Like that Michael Jordan quote, right? I've missed the game-winning shot 26 times. Well, how many times did he hit it? The classic story in his life and career of he got cut from basketball as a freshman. Yeah, from the varsity team. Like, there's, there's a limit to the amount of failure we can handle. And the culture of Christianity we exist in that doesn't help either. I'm not sure if Abram or Moses or David or Peter or Paul would have been allowed to be restored in the American church context. But Abram had to find his identity in God's calling. He was willing to go back to the place that God had said, this is what I'm gonna give your descendants. He was willing to go back to the start where he first built an altar to worship God. And if, if we are gonna follow Jesus, we have to find our identity in God's calling on us too. Now, did Abraham lack, did Abram lack ambition? No. He wanted a place for his family and his descendants. Like, he trusted God's promise there, but there's still ambition there to say, yeah, I want that. I want my family to have a rootedness and a place here. And God brought him to it, even though it wasn't yet his. The Canaanites and Perizzites were still in the land. He desperately wanted children, and we see that as a theme that continues. And he was fighting to rest in God's promise, but he had an ambition to have a family. He wanted God to bless him and bless all people through him. That's something that only God can accomplish, but it is a good ambition. Ambition isn't wrong, but it is a terrible God to serve and it is because it is unforgiving and will demand your life when you fail to attain it. Now again, Abram was totally counterculture in giving Lot the first choice, but but it shows that Lot was still filled with self-ambition while Abram was filled with an ambition to return and to rest in God's presence and promise, relying on God as the one who would bring those things to their fullness. And that leads us to, we've seen now, Lot's response, Abram's response to failures, to trust God in return. We need to look briefly at God's response, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And Paul says that in Romans, but, but we see it here, that, that we, there's no guarantee as Abram returns in the story of how God is going to respond. And as Abram settles into a place, the Lord said to him, did, did you catch this? After Lot had separated with him, he said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land you see, I will give it to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, so your offspring also can be counted. So get up, Abram, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So God restored Abram. He reminded him of the promise. He came back and restated the covenant in different terms, which we're going to see over and over again in Abram's life as well, that God keeps coming back even after Abram's failure, and he keeps coming back to say, 
this is the place I'm gonna give you. You're gonna have offspring like the, the dust on the earth, like the sand on the seashores, like the stars in the sky. You're gonna, have, you're gonna be the father of nations and you are gonna bless all the families of the earth. He keeps repeating those things as, as Abram is restored, even when he continues to make mistakes. And he recommissions him. He has a thing for him to do. He says, get up, walk the land, go and see this place. And so this is what the message for us today, that none of us is perfect. You are not perfect. You are going to fail, and at times it will be spectacular. Your faith is going to fail at times. You'll find yourself afraid and doubting God's presence and his promise. And the harder you work to muscle through it and to push your way through it, the more you'll be caught up in an inability to experience failure ever again. It'll crush you. You'll be running from God, looking elsewhere for safety and significance, and God knows all of it. But here's the hope. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. His promises will stand. He alone can restore us, and he doesn't forgive us so that we can stay under the shadow of death. We are brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light so that we can walk forward in it. He didn't bring Abram back to just say, all right, Abram, now you're going to sit on the sideline. He restored the covenant and said, now get up and walk around. I've got work for you to do. Why would God be so kind to us, and how can we see that that's a guarantee? Well, Jesus is the guarantee. That the same God who who showed this kindness to Abram, the, the, the same God who showed this grace and forgiveness and mercy to Abram and the restoration is the same God who took on flesh in the person Jesus Christ, who bore the weight of the sin that we cannot bear, who conquered death with his resurrection. Why? So that he could secure a promise for us and the guarantee that we can walk by faith and, that our, and we can have hope, and that our hope isn't just wishful thinking, but our hope is a rooted and settled confidence that the promises of God are true because they've been shown through in Christ. And so if you're having trouble dealing with failure, if it hangs over you like an ominous storm on the horizon, there's hope for you today. You're, you're gonna fail at times. Even when you're walking in the promises of God, when you feel like you are understanding his calling, when you feel like he's leading you in a direction, and there will be times when he calls you to things that you are scared of because you're afraid that you can't achieve it. There will be times when God calls you to sit and rest in his promise, trusting that he's going to achieve something that you cannot. But if we find our foundation in our own ambitions, we will be crushed over time. We'll just keep pursuing what looks good in a moment. And do you realize that here, Lot literally went to where he thought the grass was greener? He said, look at that place. Look how green and lush. It's like Eden. It's like Egypt. And he gets down there and settles in next to Sodom. If we pursue our own ambition, we'll be ruled by a need to not fail. But if you can find the foundation of your identity rooted in Christ, in God's calling on your life through him, then you'll be free. You'll be free to fail. And then you can confess and repent in return and trust that God will restore you. 
you'll be free, like Abram here, to love others and seek their good above your own, to allow people to choose what they need and want, even when it's hard for you and it's gonna mean sacrifice for you. You'll be free to take risks knowing that your identity is not at stake in your success or failure. And if you're able to make the foundation of your identity rooted in Christ and the promises of God through him, you'll be free to rest in God's love and kindness, submitting every ambition you have to him and trusting that God will do what he will do. And so the path to break out of our fear of failure is repentance, it's trust. And then to not sit again, to, God doesn't call us to, to wallow in self-pity and misery. And for some of you, you feel like even when you've come to a place of confessing and repenting, you need to be the one to continue to punish yourself and not allow yourself to break free from it. You need to hear the blood of Christ covers you. We saw in our series that we walked through the virtues in Ephesians 4 that humility is, is the ability to see yourself as you stand before God and to see others as they stand before God. Humility is not continually, forever, beating yourself up and living under the shadow of the death of your own sin. Humility is saying, my hope isn't in myself, it's in Christ. But God has promised me that I stand in his righteousness, and so part of believing that promise is actually seeing yourself as God sees you, as one who bears his image and likeness and stands in the fullness of the righteousness of Christ before him. He's calling to you, get up, look around, look at what I've given you. He has work for you to do. Let's pray. Father, these things are hard for us to believe because it takes trust, because it it gets to the core of our identity, because it gets to the core of, of the way we see ourselves, we want other people to see us. Lord, would you expose in each one of us where our ambitions are leading us to places that look lush and life-giving but are actually leading us into wickedness and into destruction? Would you show us so that we don't, like Lot, just push ahead with our ambition? Would you help us, like Abram, to be able to see where we fail, where we, where we make mistakes, where we don't trust you, where we turn to other things for our protection and our provision and for our security and our safety and our significance? Would you expose those things so that, and then move by your spirit to give us the boldness and the confidence to be able, like Abram, to recognize it and to turn back from it, to come back to you, to turn back to the place where you meet us as we turn in worship. Father, would you give a freedom by your spirit that we can live and walk with our identity rooted in Christ rather than in ourselves, in our own pursuits, in our own ambitions. And for those who don't know Christ yet, who, are, who aren't walking with Jesus as we've come in here today, I pray that your spirit would move to bring peace and hope, to impress on them your love and your kindness, 
and that you've made a way. So Father, we're thankful for Jesus and thankful that your promises are true, that we can count on them. We pray in Christ's name, amen.